podcast where you can come and get lit. Canadian lit, that is. Join Linda as she talks about authors in Canada and sometimes with them, using her expertise to shed light on recent and not-so-recent writers. And now, get set for Getting Lit with Linda. Hi, this is Linda Mora, the writer and host of Getting Lit with Linda. Welcome to today's episode on Heather O'Neill. To explain why I love the work of today's writer so very much, I'm going to start with another personal story. I'm also dedicating today's episode to my mother, who passed away in the fall of 2017. On some days, I still have a little difficulty accepting that, just as I did the very first time we were informed of her diagnosis while we sat in the oncologist's office in December of 2014. Some people have thorny relationships with their mothers. I'm not going to claim that the relationship with my mother was perfect or that it wasn't complicated. It most certainly was. But my mother was also my best friend, and I loved her fiercely. So when we were informed about her diagnosis, something very unusual happened to me. I stopped reading. This is really strange for someone like me because... I teach literature. I've been an avid reader and writer since I was a child, and I used to think I could read all the books in the library. Books even now are piled up and spilling from my bookcases in Charles Dickensian fashion. They almost take a life on of their own. So at this time, I looked at the books on my shelves. I rearranged them. I stacked them up differently. I just couldn't read them. This experience is not unlike another one very recently in my life, and I suspect that this may have been true for many of you out there in view of what's been happening in the world and what had been happening in your lives. You may have had trouble reading, and if you did, I completely understand that. In any case, it felt like my brain had malfunctioned. At the time, I couldn't accept what was happening to my mother. I was right there. I knew it was happening. Yet somehow I couldn't process it, and at some level, I didn't want to either. At last, after eight months of feeling numb and having difficulty concentrating, on some medical advice I took one week's vacation. The distance, my doctor observed, would give me some rest and a sense of perspective. Out of habit, and perhaps a little bit of hope, I threw two books into my suitcase, and I went. The first day passed, and I slept through most of it. The second day passed, still nothing. Like a good Grimm's fairy tale, on the third day, I picked up the first book. I read a few pages, then I read a few more, and then I missed lunch and forgot what time it was, until I looked up, and then I had pretty much finished the entirety of the book. On the fourth day, I finished what was left of the novel and started the next book I brought with me, a collection of short stories. Again, I read a few pages, and then I didn't look up again until I was done. I felt that I'd connected with those pages in such a way that it restored me in my imagination. It would still mean returning and going through the painful journey of accepting what was happening to my mother. But at least my heart and my mind were working conjointly again. So who was this remarkable author who I felt helped me heal and read again? Heather O'Neill. The two books I slipped into my suitcase, Lullabies for Little Criminals, published by Harper Perennial, and Daydreams of Angels, published by HarperCollins in 2015. 
Many of you will already know who this author is, but for those of you who don't, you have some seriously wonderful reading ahead of you. And these are not her only two. She also published The Girl Who Was Saturday Night, that was also published by HarperCollins, but in 2014, and The Lonely Hearts Hotel. Again, the same publishing company, but in 2017. Now, I've also skimmed through several of her very cool articles that appeared in the New York Times Magazine and the Canadian version of Elle Magazine. Yes, I do love Elle, and I shamelessly pour over the fashion pages whenever I pick up an issue. If someday I have to come out of the closet about anything, all my clothes are coming with me. They'd have to. It's pretty packed in there. But I digress. I'm focusing on her short story today, although I would say that her writing may largely be characterized by this particular trait, artful artlessness. What I mean by this is that she has a way of writing that makes you feel like you just dashed off a sentence or a paragraph. It seems so light and easy. She has this gentle way of approaching her material, a whimsical humor or irony at work in so much of what she writes. It seems so effortless. But don't be fooled by that, not even for a moment. Her writing is not off the cuff. O'Neill is this superb writer crafting every word with great care. In this sense, the title of her collection is apt. Something that seems so ethereal, daydreams and angels, has far greater gravitas, spiritual, imaginative, and otherwise, than we might ordinarily and initially think. But there's something else, too, about these stories, which I think explains why I could so quickly become immersed in their pages and deeply appreciate them. First, let me say that short stories are not always given the spotlight, a tendency that I had hoped we had remedied with the likes of Alice Munro, who brought the Nobel Prize back to Canada with her extraordinary accomplishment in the genre. There's an episode coming up about her, you can be sure of that. Still, though, the novel is persistently seen in some quarters as the epitome of literary achievement. It's somewhat like the story of Cinderella and her sisters. No one really knows how much work that woman does, and the vanity, arrogance, and selfishness of the other two completely eclipse her real beauty and skill. Today, I want the Cinderella of the genre to wear the snazzy glass slippers and parade around in them for all the world to see. I'm only going to use one story from the collection, titled Messages in Bottles. It's a form of what I'll call critical synecdoche, where I'll allow one story to stand in for the whole. But let's not kid ourselves, I just don't have time to do the whole book. Still, I think you'll see why I generally connected with them on such a personal level, and why I think they are really these marvelous gems, sophisticated works of art. This story I've chosen is particularly appropriate in view of the conditions of the world right now, as I think you'll agree. The story focuses on twins. I'm not sure why, but O'Neill seems to be fascinated by twins. They reappear in other work. So as I say, it focuses on these twins who come from an early 20th century upper-class family and on the real difficulty, almost impossibility, of forging a sense of intimacy even with their very own parents. Their father is a renowned physician who invents several treatments for polio, none of which are successful, although the narrator concedes unsuccessful treatments were all the rage back then. 
while their mother is a renowned cellist who produced a composition so intricate that no one else can play it. What's clear is that in both their endeavors, the parents are cut off from the rest of humanity. What they produce is of little value to anyone else, and so they remain in their isolated little silos without connecting with anyone. This is a really important point, and I promise I'm going to return to it. The children are therefore raised in this rather sterile and secluded context. They don't really play with other children. They learn how to use 18 different types of forks at supper time, carry 10 books on their head on the way to the park, and have learned to sit perfectly still in case they have their portraits painted. Such model children, pun fully intended. Although they don't engage in small talk, when they speak, they use a sophisticated vocabulary that they actually don't know the meaning of. What this all points to is that they're not given the space to be fully human, nor do they connect with anyone deeply, including and especially their parents. At last, in 1913, the entire family boards an ocean liner, a famous one the narrator discloses to the reader, in order to attend the World's Fair, to which the parents have been invited. Now, we all know that the Titanic sank in 1912, so our narrator might be seen as being a bit coy, but we shouldn't try to guffaw or wave our hands dismissively in the air about it, because as the narrator suggests, back then, quote, ocean liners were like movie stars, end quote. Well, like the Titanic, this boat has apparently attained a mythological status because so many famous things happened aboard it. Predictably, this boat also sinks, and almost no one is saved. Not because of the human error involved in the number of lifeboats, but rather because termites have eaten through them. The tragedy, the narrator wryly tells us, is apparently not the loss of human life but the lavish tea sets and brand new suits that go down to a watery grave. The way that loss is here registered suggests a sense of superficiality. Now, O'Neill is very far from superficial, so this kind of remark is not about celebrating or mourning respectively material accomplishment or loss, but rather what happens when we become completely disoriented by conspicuous consumption. We become so disconnected from each other that our value systems become skewed. And so our twins have initially been so affected. And yes, the twins actually do survive, although it's reported that there are no survivors. They survive by climbing onto their mother's cello and floating away. Significantly, the cello, which makes a mournful noise as it floats over the waves, attracts a whale that falls in love with the cello. Already the narrator seems to suggest meaningful connection is beginning to emerge, even if it's not yet with other humans. The twins at last arrive on a deserted island after three long days at sea. There's Grimm's fairy tales again for you, which seems to heighten their initial isolation. And while they feel homesick for their parents and classmates, they begin to interact with the natural world in ways that are both peculiar and charming. At last, some empty bottles of Coca-Cola and beer wash up on the shore, apparently by lazy pirates who had selfishly not considered how they were polluting the sea. 
The young girl decides to write letters on the back of the same musical scores her mother had used to write her incomprehensible cello composition. She fills the bottles with messages and then tosses them back into the sea. Her brother follows suit, although his letters take on a more aggressive approach, at times reprimanding the intended recipient for not having rescued them yet. Her letters are, at turns, a representation of the world they now inhabit, a characterization of their sense of loss, isolation, and loneliness, and a cry for help. Like every writer, the narrator observes, she felt absolutely sure that her readers were out there. In other words, in the midst of their isolation, what she expresses the need for more than anything else is a desire for connection and intimacy. Now, you may think this intimacy takes on romantic overtones. You won't be entirely wrong, but the story takes a turn you won't quite expect. They are eventually rescued by the crew of a boat named, of all things, the Moby Dick. And the crew comes to realize that they've rescued the, quote, famous young authors of Les Messages dans les Bouteilles. That's right, the messages had been found and printed in papers in Paris and London to wide acclaim. They're met with what might be deemed an over-solicitous public. The letters are transformed into a book which becomes a bestseller, The irony should not be missed when the narrator informs us that lovers give each other copies of this book as a holiday gift and children love the stories as part of their bedtime tales. Now, you might expect that the twins are delighted by their instant celebrity status. The young boy receives all manner of attention from his fans, from love letters to lavish gifts, and is indulged at every turn. He's given 89 puppies and 345 pairs of shoes. These seem to be arbitrary numbers, but their precision also highlight that someone has actually been counting. And that would be important in a culture of conspicuous consumption. She, in turn, inspires songs and inspires fashion trends and marriage proposals, even though apparently she's only 12 years old. This is certainly a moment when the irony becomes darker or bleaker. With so many indulgences, with all the attention lavished upon them, the twins are yet unhappy. So much so that they increasingly don't leave their house, and when they do, all remark upon the fact that they never smile or laugh. Their publishers want them not only to keep writing, but to go on speaking tours. However, the twins come to realize that on the island, they were motivated to write. They knew something was wrong with their lives, and they wanted to change that. But back in Europe, with every possible indulgence imaginable, they needed nothing, and therefore they had nothing to write about. They were famous, and everyone was in love with them. Isn't that, after all, what everyone wants deep down? Well, it can't be true of course, or the twins wouldn't be so miserable, which they are. They apparently have need of something or they wouldn't feel so unhappy. They had thought that being able to skip out to the store and buy some chocolate milk would be the answer. They thought that birthday cakes and puppies and houses and clothes and adulation would have filled every deep wish. But it doesn't. Instead, what they realize is that on the island... 
in a space of seeming isolation, they had also been nourished by a sense of hope. Hope that someday they would connect with others. A hope of being found. And by a sense of an imagination that could never find its equal in the real. So the narrator observes that all that desire had made their hearts enormous. Their longing for happiness was happiness itself. So, what do they do? They escape through a window, down a back alley, and make their way to the riverbank. They board a tiny ship, and leaving all maps behind, they do their best to lose themselves, as they did once before. Of course, the people in the city are roused by the news of their departure, and they cry out in anguish at the loss of the twins. They run to the riverbank to appeal to them, but the boat is already too far distant. It's too late. They watch as the twins disappear from view. All is not, however, lost. About six months later, a group of bottles wash up on the shore with letters tucked inside. Yes, it is the twins. They found their way back to the island and are writing again, communicating and connecting meaningfully with others through the power of their letters, through imagination, through art. Even in isolation and even at a remove, indeed, because of such isolation, because of such distance, we might learn how to connect better with others. Why? I suppose to quote O'Neill, we could say because our desire might make our hearts enormous. Like the twins, our longing for happiness can be a form of happiness itself. Like the twins, sometimes we gain perspective, as I did, from being removed, temporarily or not, from certain circumstances, certain contexts. And sometimes, and this has been especially relevant for our present circumstances, sometimes geographical distance doesn't necessarily impede real intimacy with others. Indeed, it may even facilitate it. This is the takeaway portion of the podcast. Recently, through the efforts of Professor Gregory Betts, I received a copy of Suvankin Thamavangsa's collection of poetry, Found, published by Peddler Press. It's hard to get a copy of this collection now that her book, How to Pronounce Knife, won the Scotiabank Giller Prize. Uh, in Canada, that's one of the top national prizes. I'll probably do an episode on prizes in the future. I have it in my hands right now, and so I can tell you it's this beautifully produced book with this lovely ivory textured paper and bound in an aubergine cover. Peddler Press created a beautiful object just in its publication, but the poetry is beautiful too. The lyrics, spare as they are, are also paradoxically lush. Her collection is based on this scrapbook that her father wrote in 1978 when her parents lived in a refugee camp. Her father apparently threw out the scrapbook, which Thema Vangsa happened to find and retrieve from the bin. From this, she's derived the most exquisite series, which follow the elements or the contents of her father's scrapbook. One of my favorites, called Light, addresses the unyielding nature of glass. And because, even now, she writes, 
Glass will not bend. Light must come in bent. I had never thought of how light must be pliable for glass, and of course, the multiple significations that this entails. If you can get your hands on this book, it's entirely worth it. But if you can't, I've added a link in the show notes so you can hear her read from the collection. Anyway, that's it for today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. In two weeks' time, I'll be back speaking about Nino Ricci's Lives of the Saints. That was Getting Lit with Linda, hosted by Linda Mora. If you have a topic you would like to see covered, write to us at gettinglitwithlinda at gmail.com. Until next time, we hope you continue to get lit.